Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.12. Last time we brought our narrative to the point of a tumultuous event in Hungarian history. Matyash Rakoshi was gone, but the hated dictator had merely been replaced by his lackey, Erno Gero, and the situation over the course of 1956 had only grown worse, exacerbated first by the genuine problems of Hungarians at home and the dissatisfaction with their lot, but exploding onto Budapest's streets with a march on the 23rd of October, which was actually in solidarity with what had occurred in Poland. By this point, Poland's government had been satisfied, and Vladislav Gomulka, the nationalist communist candidate, had been appointed first secretary, and the Soviet military bluff had been called. Perhaps Hungarians believed they could do the same thing. Perhaps those students who gathered on the afternoon of the 23rd of October believed they could make a difference. Regardless of belief or intentions, it seems nobody anticipated what was to come next. An eruption of feeling, anger and frustration at a decade of false promises, cruelty and despair. In this episode, we examine the incredible ups and downs of this revolt as Moscow does its best to crush it and in the process forcibly set back the clock. All the while, on the sidelines looking on, was the person of Imre Naj. Here we also see how that mustachioed party figure went from candidate to hero. So I hope you're ready for all this, as we take you to October 1956. Arise, Hungarians, your country calls you. Meet this hour, whatever befalls you. Shall we be free men or be slaves? Choose the lot your spirit craves. In such a way, the march began, with this hymn to Hungarian nationhood, written, you guessed it, during the 1848 revolutions. The hymn was accompanied by several other slogans such as Friendship with Poland, Long Live the Youth of Warsaw, and Poland Shows the Way. The plan of the marchers was to meet at the statue of a Polish general who had served the Hungarians in 1848 and had been martyred for his actions. It was fair to say then that the march did not begin with the intention of detaching Hungary from the Soviet bloc. 
Once again, it would depend upon the responses of the Hungarian government what actually came of this march. It could serve as an opportunity to grant limited concessions before it was too late, or it could stand as the death knell of a flagging regime caught with its pants down for the final time. Arno Gero hadn't exactly been a picture of confidence in the hours before the march began. Arriving in Budapest in high spirits from a trip to see Comrade Tito, Gero decided that morning that the march would be banned, before changing his mind a few hours later. These two decisions, both communicated on state radio, only confirmed the picture of Erno Gero as an uncertain, inconsistent leader, unable to deal with the latest challenges provided by the situation. From the two sides of the city across the Danube, thousands of students met and converged at Josef Bem's statue, until some 25,000 students had crammed into Bem Square, spilling out onto the adjoining embankments. Because the march had been hastily organised, there had been little way for the students to spread the word other than through the use of flyers. These flyers announced the time and date of the march and where it would converge, but they also introduced the so-called 16 points, which was to become the manifesto of the revolution. Before we go any further in our narrative, let's run through what a few of these 16 points were now. It should be emphasised that not all students were aware of these points when they set out that afternoon, but word quickly spread, thanks to the commandeering of a few volunteered printing presses, that the students were marching for a good deal more than solidarity with Poland. The 16 points document is remarkably clear. 12 of the 16 points begin with the line, We Demand, indicating the serious nature of the march and the tense, defiant feelings of those that attended. One example was, We demand the immediate evacuation of all Soviet troops in conformity with the provisions of the Treaty of Peace. That this was the first point on the document spoke to the existence of deep-seated resentment felt by Hungarians about Soviet troops which were there in their country just to bully them into submission and obedience. Another point demanded an inquiry into the crimes of Matyash Rakoshi while he had been in office. A demand was also made for general elections by secret ballot to elect a new National Assembly. The third point insisted that a new government must be constituted under the direction of comrade Imre Naj. All the criminal leaders of the Stalinist Rakoshi era must be immediately relieved of their duties. A demand was also made for the revision of Hungarian-Soviet relations in the economic, political and cultural spheres with a further demand for non-interference by either power in the affairs of the other. There was also a demand for Complete recognition of freedom of opinion and expression, of freedom of the press and radio, as well as the creation of a new daily newspaper for students. The removal of Soviet emblems, the adoption of national Hungarian ones, the adoption of old national holidays, the removal of the statue of Stalin, and this would become very important later, and his replacement by a monument of martyrs to Hungarian freedom, made up the other points. Finally, the last two points dealt with organising a new youth parliament within a few days, which would properly discuss the latest developments and plan to change the country in line with these demands. As the march converged at Bem Square, it was joined after 5pm by workers finishing their shifts for the day and likely curious about all the noise. As the people grew more restless and more brave, since they hadn't even made a plan for what they were going to do once they reached the end destination of Bem Square, someone called out for a march to the parliament two kilometres away. The protesters by now had swollen to nearly 50,000 people as word of the gathering spread, and they were soon joined by the young, the very young, and the elderly. People carried flags which contained a special message. 
You see, they carried the Soviet Hungarian flag, which contained the national colours and the hammer and sickle superimposed upon it. But in these flags that the protesters carried, the Soviet symbols were cut out, which left a gaping hole in the flag. These holy flags were carried and draped across buildings, making the central message very clear that Moscow was being removed from the debate. On the way to the parliament, the chanting became more radical. Gone were mentions of Poland, and they had been replaced with cries of Russians go home. On the streets, ironically enough, Lenin himself would have been able to see that the intellectual and the worker were uniting as one, a key ingredient for a successful revolution. One of the people who played a critical role in filming the events of the next few days was Caroli Mack, who worked in the city's film school and kept his camera running almost non-stop during the revolt. Mack remembered the scene during those first hours of the march, when the decision was made to advance on Parliament. He said, The first few moments of the marches were maybe the most extraordinary. The pent-up emotions, the feeling that at last, after years, people could show what they felt, was so liberating. Nobody thought that in a few hours' time there was going to be a revolution, and this was the start of it. But people felt, I felt, a huge weight being lifted from our shoulders. All kinds of people, not just students, joined the march the whole time. Older people, you could see, were crying tears of joy that at last they could find a way to speak. One figure who seemed to have no difficulty in speaking was Erno Gero, who telephoned the Soviet ambassador to Hungary at 5pm in a state of panic at the escalating situation in the centre of his city. At the other end of the line, in the Soviet embassy, was Yuri Andropov, who had seen for himself the state of affairs in Hungary when he had been driven around in his Soviet limousine. Andropov had been peeved at the evident scorn displayed by the Hungarian people towards a Soviet-marked car, which would once have left them scurrying for cover. Something was brewing that day, and Andropov knew it. In the days before, he had liaised with the Soviet military attaché to ensure that a Soviet army was ready to intervene if necessary. It was also likely that a political deputation, including Anastas Mikoyan, would be on hand if things did get ugly. At 6pm on this day, the protesters reached the parliament, and the lights were turned off in a bid to send the protesters away. But it had the opposite effect. The citizens began burning books, flyers, and any other flammable item they could get their hands on. The scene on the street quickly descended into a volatile situation. A roar went out from the ever-increasing crowd as word spread of what was going down. Imre Naj was the man the people wanted to see, but Imre Naj did not at all want to see them. Holed up in his villa about half an hour's distance from the protest, and likely able to hear its distant cries, Naj was convinced that the whole act of the protest march was a mistake, and that it would ruin the country by handing the debate to radicals. As we've said before, Imre Naj, a party man through and through, could not countenance going against the express wishes of that party. Well, at least not yet. Visited by yet another deputation of his friends that evening, Imre Naj was finally persuaded to address the crowd. Meanwhile, a curious scene was unfolding in the city's radio station. The protesters were determined to get the 16 points broadcast across the radio, but first they would have to break into the well-guarded radio compound. The protesters had been allowed into the building to present their case, and the radio operator head had given them permission to have their points broadcast. 
As the radio van went into the street to carry this out, and the lady began reading the 16 points though, it was clear that something was wrong. While the facade was being maintained, people started to notice that the radio van itself wasn't broadcasting. The government radio operators had tried to pull a fast one on the protesters, and the protesters became apoplectic in response. The staff were roughed up and the radio van was used to batter down the gates into the compound. One way or another, the protesters insisted their voices would be heard. It was while they were resting with the radio staff that a speech of a different kind did come through the radio. This was the voice of Erno Gero, and he was not playing nice. Letting loose with all the usual condescending rhetoric and condemnations, Gero labelled the protesters as traitors and he demanded that they disperse, offering no concessions and promising nothing but the threat of severe force if they did not leave. Gero's speech represented everything that was wrong with Hungary's leadership. Out of touch, arrogant, and devoid of any consideration of what the people actually wanted, Gero was the epitome of the kind of Stalinist apparatchik that the Hungarian people so despised. This venomous speech proved to be the tipping point. If their leaders were refusing to recognise their genuine grievances, then the people would just have to make change happen by themselves. Just before 9pm that evening, Imre Naj spoke before the assembled crowd. The appearance went down like a lead balloon, largely because Imre Naj, even though he was not as critical or aggressive as Erno Gero, was in many ways just as out of touch. When Naj began his speech with comrades, as was customary, he was shouted down. No, we are not comrades, came the sound from the audience. As if throwing mud at the wall and seeing what stuck, Naj then began his speech with citizens, which was apparently more acceptable to those assembled. Naj didn't refer to the 16 points, and he didn't promise the people much of anything. He asked them to trust in their government to make the changes, and not to engage in illegal activities. This was hardly an inspiring performance, but if the experience was a learning curve, then Naj would eventually come into the role which the people had selected for him. At Heroes Square, one of the entrances to City Park, a 12-metre bronze statue of Stalin dominated the scene. The cruel, sickly irony of the statue didn't come from the fact that Stalin's likeness had a nauseating, uncharacteristic smile across his bronze face. Instead, it was the national insult found in the fact that Stalin saw fit to install his own figure in a place traditionally reserved for Hungary's martyrs or leading cultural figures. Stalin's statue was probably the most out-of-place monument to ever grace Heroes Square, and it was felt to be so out-of-place that it actually made it onto the protesters' 16 points, as we saw. Now, after so many years staring at this national insult, the people rallied around the statue in a bid to bring it down. Tasked with preserving this statue and protecting it from the people was Lieutenant Kish, who called his superior for advice. Comrade Colonel... People are pulling down the statue. Please send orders immediately. Okay, Comrade Lieutenant, tell me about this pulling down. There are about 100,000 people around the statue. Are you sure there are as many as that? Comrade Colonel, all of Heroes Square, all the edge of the woods is thick with people. What shall I do? Okay, how many men have you got? Well, 25, Comrade Colonel. Comrade Lieutenant... You are willing to sacrifice your life for the party, but for the Stalin statue? In this way, the colonel effectively told him to leave the statue be. 
he, like so many other isolated divisions of soldiers, was completely ill-equipped to deal with the kind of national displays on this scale. The Soviet plan seemed to be to allow the protesters to progress on some level so that the calling in of the heavy guns and armies could be justified. Yet this plan was not nearly as effective as had been anticipated, as we will see. After the employment of some metal-burning equipment, Stalin's statue finally descended at exactly 9.37pm on this day. One of the engineers who had taken part in the destruction recalled that It was such an eerie sound, several thousand people sighing with joy. I think we had all a sense of making history. The stain on national pride had been removed, and while the sighs of joy told a multitude of stories, the mission was far from finished. Not just Stalin's likeness, but his cruel legacy was everywhere to be found in the city, and this had to be pulled down too. At the radio station, now awash with infuriated protesters, Avu guards and radio staff, the first of several armed detachments of military, arrived. These had been sent in as a first response to the crisis by Garo, but his misjudgment of the situation became fatal when these soldiers, effectively just Hungarian citizens in Soviet uniforms, actually joined the protesters' side. Not only that, guys, but they also, along with several of their comrades and peers, opened their weapons stores to the protesters, providing in the process a key ingredient to an insurrection. Weapons. The entry of weapons into the debate, coming mainly from Erno Garo's massive miscalculation, served to further radicalise the situation, and as the Hungarian Soviet seemed powerless to defuse the situation, the mood only became more radicalised. Within hours, a call for change had become a call to arms. The speed of this transformation suggests that Hungarians themselves were not far from making this change, and that they had been pushed to the brink of patience in years past. If Erno Garo's angry speech over the radio had pushed them over the edge, the acquisition of weapons and the cooperation of several soldiers with the insurgents provided the spark to the tinderbox, which had been growing ever since Soviet troops first liberated the country in 1945. Just before midnight on the 23rd of October, 1956, a curious scene was taking place. Imre Naj had walked with his son-in-law to the Communist Party HQ to be greeted by an incredible scene. Communist Muscovites, who for years had controlled the country and operated in Moscow's name, were running scared within the building. Some were even burning papers in a bid to hide their complicity in what had befallen the country in years past. Naj proceeded to Erno Gero's office, who was present and arguing with several peers. Immediately, Garo tore into Naj, characteristically failing to take responsibility himself. You instigated the riots. Now you can stew in your own juice, Garo said. Imre Naj had had enough. I have instigated nothing and you know it, Naj replied. To which Garo replied angrily to him. You have no position within the party or government. No authority. How did you dare to go to Parliament and incite the crowds by speaking from the balcony? As if capturing the truth of the moment, Naj retorted, Everything that is happening now could have been prevented if you had handled the situation better during the day. If Erno Garo knew that Naj was right, he didn't show it, but he had to grind his teeth because he had already received interesting orders. Under Anastas Mikoyan's advice, 
Moscow had determined it would be wise to appoint Imre Naj as Prime Minister yet again. Erno Garrow thus needed Naj on hand, even if he couldn't stand him. Garrow had big, cynical plans for Naj, and they all revolved around the expectation that he would be able to cling to power still, even when this was all over. This impromptu rising would be put down, Naj would be tarnished by association, and the bland but courageous Naj would be removed as an icon of resistance, leaving the people with no one to turn to. As hysterical and deluded as Garrow seemed, he did at least take solace from one important fact. A few miles out from Budapest were the first Soviet detachments, and these would arrive between 2 and 3 a.m. on the early hours of Wednesday, the 24th of October. Surely, Garrow reasoned, the application of stern Soviet force to this rabble would turn the tide and end the ridiculous debate once and for all. Soviet troops would mop them up without difficulty in a few hours, Garrow claimed. As his countrymen prepared themselves and their makeshift defensive positions, armed themselves with Molotov cocktails, and handed out ammunition, whatever ammunition they could find, the night of the 23rd of October looked to be the longest one yet. The day had begun with high hopes for national expression and freedoms. Now it had descended into this. All the Hungarian people could do was hold on. It has to be said, before we go any further, that a degree of controversy exists to this day over the question of Soviet intervention. The question, in short, was did Naj, as the new Prime Minister of Soviet Hungary, request the Soviet troops to send their armed columns in? The answer to this is no. Not even Naj's sense of party loyalty would permit him to take such a step. It was Erno Garrow, predictably enough, who felt compelled to ask for the Soviet forces to intervene. In a sense, then, Soviet propaganda had an element of truth when it stated that it was coming to the rescue of the people's Hungary at the behest of the Hungarians. What Naj did do was authorise martial law to come into effect, and by doing so he extended the powers of the police to arrest and shoot on sight anyone they liked, while the Avu also grew even more powerful and dangerous wings in the process. While the implications of this ruling were damaging to Naj's reputation, we must consider it in the context of the man's belief that only the party could restore order. Rightly or wrongly, Naj believed that only the country's political, military and police arms would be capable of neutralising the result and bringing a return of peace. His opinions would change in this regard as an eventful week beckoned. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. For the next week, Budapest and the entire country of Hungary were gripped by a bitter, bloody and resilient showdown between Hungarian insurgents, who became separatists, and their Soviet masters. A key event occurred on Thursday the 25th of October, when a gathering of people in front of Parliament Square, a group which included many children, were suddenly gunned down in cold blood, with at least 70 deaths recorded. News of the event was passed around, and it gradually became more perverse and twisted, as would happen normally, but the central truth remained the same. The Soviets had fired first on unarmed civilians. This act made radicals out of moderates, and martyrs out of workers, and soldiers out of children. It was a truly terrible time, guys, made more confusing by the haphazard nature of this revolt. One historian recorded that, Battles were isolated, small-scale. Guns would be blazing along one street, while around the corner a grocery shop would remain open, and people would be queuing for bread. In my opinion, this image is really fascinating. The idea that on one side of the street you could have a whole gun battle going on with terrible casualties and losses and makeshift barricades set up, while a few metres away it would be business as usual. But this image also helps us explain how civilians could be protesting in one region, like in Parliament Square, while in other portions of the city no-go areas were established. Choke points were set up to block and trap enemy tanks, which could then be used as further roadblocks against any additional soldiers. The insurgents devised ingenious ways of stalling the tanks long enough to aim a well-placed Molotov cocktail at their driver. And even the use of Molotov cocktails was a tactic reminiscent of the Finnish tactics during the Winter War of 1939-40. And much like in that war, the Soviets acted with a blithe indifference when considering their own casualties. Few, if any, had ever been taught how to deal with an essentially urban war against an enemy that knew the area far better than they did. In addition, for the first few days at least, it was said that the city was not supposed to be destroyed, so the rebels were safe as long as they dived between back alleys and under manhole covers to escape. Every further success emboldened more resistance and caused even more high-profile defectors. The army's top brass remained mostly loyal, but everyone except these figures could not be guaranteed. Countless conscripts had changed sides early on in the battle, pitting Hungarian against Hungarian in some cases. Colonel Pal Meliter had been called upon to restore order to the Corvin Cinema, which was a large mud-brown building that had become a HQ for the rebels. At that time that he arrived with his five Soviet tanks, Meliter made a judgement call which was to cost him his life. Watching the devastation and carnage be inflicted upon his own countrymen, he sent a matter-of-fact message to the Minister of Defence who had sent him, to the effect that he was going over to the rebels' side. Just like that, the rebels now had tanks. The following day, the same day as the Parliament Square massacre, unarmed citizens confronted a detachment of Soviet tanks. After a while refusing to budge, the civilians began conversing with the Soviets and, incredibly, persuaded them to turn back to drive to the Parliament building with their tanks and carry these civilians with them. 
Having read their 16 points, the soldiers judged them to be reasonable in the climate of world socialism, and it seemed that some Soviet soldiers just couldn't accept the great contradictions inherent in their mission. But this apparent camaraderie could not last. By Saturday the 27th of October, the revolt had been going for several days, and it had spread through the country. It seemed as though Moscow genuinely had lost control, but beneath the surface, the politicians schemed and the generals prepared still more brutal assaults into Budapest. If the city could be taken, it was believed that the rest of the revolt would crumble. Before noon on the 27th of October, Imre Naj announced the new government. He had been made its de facto leader, and he believed that the presence of non-communists in the cabinet would ease the people's woes. This was naivety in the extreme. By this point, more than 300 Hungarians had died and over 2,000 had been wounded in the several days of fighting, while 350 tanks rumbled through Budapest. At this stage, the people didn't care for new cabinets, and they seemed to have lost hope in Imre Naj as well. Sunday the 28th of October proved to be the critical watershed moment in the insurrection. It was punctuated above all by a surprising scene, a Soviet negotiation and acceptance of a ceasefire with the Hungarian insurgents. All morning, Naj had talked on the phone with Khrushchev, Mikoyan, Andropov and others. Imre Naj had refused to approve of an assault on the two main rebel positions, and his stonewalling in the 11th hour proved essential. The Soviet commanders knew that their soldiers were demoralised, and that virtually all of Budapest's 1.5 million inhabitants wanted them gone. Naj threatened to resign if the large assault went ahead, and this threat proved effective. Imre Naj was, it seemed at the time, Moscow's only hope for retaining some kind of order over the situation. The word in Moscow was that a situation akin to the Polish model would be devised, with Naj essentially aping the role taken up by Gomulka in the days before. The road to get there had been needlessly paved with blood, but the Kremlin leadership liked to imagine that the destination would be the same. As Khrushchev put it to his peers that day, We will have a lot to answer for if we don't face facts. Will we have a government in Hungary that is with us, or one that is against us, and will ask us to pull the troops out of Hungary altogether? What then? Capitulation? There is no firm leadership there in Budapest. The uprising has spread into the provinces. Their troops may go over to the rebels. They must not get too far. We will play along with the ceasefire, but we must not foster illusions. We are saving face. Saving face, indeed. It must have seemed incredible to the insurgents to see the Soviets leave, and for their campaign to be declared, for all intents and purposes, a success. By the time of Monday morning, the 29th of October, 1,000 Hungarians had died, as had 500 Soviets. The price had been high, and large portions of the city lay in ruins, but to many this price seemed worth it. Now that the Soviets were actually leaving, a true opportunity for change in Hungary was within one's grasp at last. A return to the old dictatorship under Rakushi was now impossible, and with the fighting largely drying up, attention turned to Imre Naj, who had been somewhat sidelined in the previous days, as he attempted to keep pace with the military events. Food exports were banned on his cabinet's orders, and food overflowed from the shelves as never before, instead of going to the Soviet satellites. Imports from east and west were allowed through, which fortified the hospitals and healed the several thousand wounded combatants. In this period of post-insurrection, in a state of affairs never before experienced in the history of the Soviet Union, 
The mood was as euphoric as it was stunned. People couldn't believe what had been achieved, even while undercurrents of doubt remained. As Agnes Gersley, later one of Hungary's credited poets, noted, saying, This period was completely unreal. I was young and politically naive, I know that, but more experienced people, even those who thought they really knew what was going on, felt the same. We really thought we had got away with it. At least, for a while. Indeed, for all intents and purposes, the Soviets remained true to their word. The remaining insurgents were turned into a National Guard, tasked with ensuring that their side followed the protocols of the ceasefire, restored order to the streets, and didn't give the Russians any excuse to break their promises. Imre Naj was tasked with the two great challenges, which, in the end, proved impossible to meet. The first was to persuade the more radical revolutionaries to lay down their arms, and the second, in line with this, was to persuade the majority of Hungarians, who were flush with the sense of victory in late October, to accept that half a loaf was better than none at all. Interestingly, whereas Imrenaj failed to persuade his countrymen into accepting their lot with disastrous and tragic consequences, the invasion of Soviet forces a second time on the 2nd of November convinced Vladislav Gomulka's followers in Poland that limited reforms were the best results that could be expected. In short then, Naj's inability to sell the half-loaf to his people made such a sell far easier for Gomulka. We'll examine in the next episode how Naj's government was crushed by the cynical Soviet intervention and how the different satellites in the Soviet bloc were impacted by this, but first it's worth detailing those last few days of nervous calm which preceded the collapse and which seemed to suggest a new national awakening was underway. The country and the city of Budapest remained divided by extremists and moderates, as much as it remained torn between idealists and realists. Some believed, like Naj, that they could only go so far. Others believed that they hadn't gone far enough. Why not make use of their victory, bring it before the United Nations and solicit American help? Such ideas were shouted down by some who were fearful of a Soviet return, but nobody could quite believe either that victory had been achieved or that the Soviet tanks would lumber back into the gutted city for all the world to see. Surely the spectacle of the second Soviet attack would shatter all sense of justice on the Soviet side? Surely it would remove all sense of international goodwill from the Soviet image? Surely it would tarnish the global, socialist message and expose it as dependent on nothing other than force? Naj was dealing with a population which couldn't decide whether it possessed leverage or not, or whether it would need to use this leverage at all. As Agnes Gersley noted, We thought for a while that anything might be possible. The mood was intoxicating, and that was the trouble. Many people were so drunk with the joy of the present, so full of euphoria, that they couldn't see what was really happening, or what was going to happen. A few sceptical people were dubious and thought that it was too good to be true, but they were drowned out by the wild optimism. In fairness, the people of Hungary had been given good cause to believe that what they had done would stand. A week after the revolution had begun, on Tuesday the 30th of October, Pravda lauded the revolt and gave it the Soviet stamp of approval. The Naj government has won the approval of the people, declared the article. Reports pouring in from all over Hungary show that the workers support the government's new regime. A 36-hour time frame was required, 
for the Soviets to make an organised withdrawal out of Budapest, so the story went. For those suspicious of Soviet intentions in this regard, Anastas Mikoyan in Budapest until his return to Moscow on the 30th of October underlined the fact that a treaty of friendship and cooperation between the USSR and other socialist states had been signed and he declared that the Soviets would negotiate with the Hungarian government and other signatories of the Warsaw Pact on the question of the presence of Soviet troops elsewhere in the territory of Hungary. The treaty even admitted to violations and mistakes which infringe the principles of equality between sovereign states. Indeed, one should bear in mind that in the Polish case, the Chinese were eager to see that a uniquely Polish road to socialism should proceed. Had the Chinese interests also influenced clemency and calm on the Hungarian issue? It seemed that this might have been the case. The Chinese delegation in Moscow at the time represented Mao Zedong's interests to the Kremlin leaders, and they advised that it would be favourable for the Soviets to effectively leave the Hungarians to their own socialist devices, as had happened in the Polish case. Left alone, the Chinese delegation was confident that the Hungarians would become a more agreeable partner. Little thought seemed to be given for what would happen if the Hungarians, unlike the Poles, went further than the sensibilities of the moment would allow. What if Imre Nagy called an end to the one-party system which knitted the communist people's republics together? What if Nagy declared Hungary's removal from the Warsaw Pact and insisted on maintaining Hungarian neutrality a la the Austrian example? What if, far from a road to socialism, Hungary entered down a path of Western democracy? All of these were questions in the air during the last few days of October 1956. Disaster occurred in Republic Square, when some armed rebels mistakenly attacked the large governmental building after receiving reports of an AVU underground group holding out there. 23 AVU members, some of whom had only joined in September, were brutally and mercilessly murdered, as was the Hungarian government officials who had attempted to plead for their lives. The murder at Republic Square was an example of the kind of event which could touch off the feared Soviet counterattack and in Nagy's mind it was imperative that such events were put to bed. He continued to urge calm and camaraderie over the radio, and in several short speeches given to some deputies from other Hungarian cities. The massacre was a warning to Nagy that he could lose control of his people, and that he could let the opportunity to make peace with the Soviets slip through his fingers by doing so. By Wednesday the 31st of October though, it was events far away in Moscow rather than in native Hungary, which would prove the most important. There, the key question was being debated. What should be done about Budapest? The answer changed every hour. As Khrushchev talked with the Chinese through the night of the 30th of October, he woke up in a different mood and he was given reports which made him change his mind still further. Upon watching newsreel footage of the incident at Republic Square, remember where those AVU agents were killed, Khrushchev seemed to have felt compelled to act. The final straw to him, it seemed, was that Nagy's government had failed to maintain order. This, indeed, would be the oft-parted justification for intervention in the months and the years which followed. The fascist counter-revolutionaries had hijacked the legitimate revolution, and the Soviets had intervened to defend the People's Republic. The reality, obviously, was far more cynical. Before noon on the 31st of October, Khrushchev had already received reports of demonstrations of solidarity in Poland, and of student demonstrations in Romania, 
where the Bucharest government had been forced to seal the border with Hungary and cancel all leave for military personnel. If Khrushchev didn't do something, he felt that Hungary would depart on its raft of optimism for western seas and that Budapest would tether the other members of the satellites to its journey. Poland had been saved, but what was to stop the Poles becoming more emboldened in the future? The Warsaw and Budapest examples necessitated a strong and swift response before both of them became national eruptions. The Hungarian situation was a great deal dicier and the government less assured, so it seemed only logical to intervene there rather than topple Gamoltka's largely stable regime. Khrushchev noted in the party meeting on the 31st of October, which effectively sealed Hungary's fate, that Our troops must not be taken out of Hungary or Budapest. We must take the initiative in restoring order to Hungary. If we withdraw from Hungary, this will encourage the American, English and French imperialists. They will see this as weakness on our part and go on the offensive. In this event, our party would not understand us. We have no other choice. We could say we tried to meet the Hungarians halfway, but there is not now any government there. Reading between the lines of what Khrushchev had said regarding Hungary's lack of government was a burning desire to save Soviet prestige and prevent the disintegration of a system which was based solely upon fear and the threat of force. Khrushchev was about to demonstrate once and for all how hollow and how thoroughly dependent upon force the Soviet system and the Soviet message was. In in the practice, he would shatter any illusions in Hungary, or the rest of the world for that matter, but in this time of perceived crisis, Khrushchev could no longer afford to care. The tanks were ordered back into Hungary, the military attaches were reappointed, and the divisions swelled from 5 to 17 in this Hungarian strike-down force. It was in this lesser-known meeting on Halloween morning 1956 that Khrushchev effectively signed the death warrant, not merely of Imre Naj and several of his allies, but also of Hungarian freedom, prosperity and national expression. For the next four decades, these qualities in Hungarian life, which many of us take so much for granted today, were to be buried like Imre Naj and his company, that is, buried face down, without fanfare, with all reference to them punishable by imprisonment or worse. It was codenamed Operation Whirlwind, but in reality, it was an operation tasked with crushing and laying low the hopes of the 10 million people who were unfortunate enough to live on the Soviet side of the Iron Curtain. In the next episode, we'll examine what this process looked like and what its legacy was for Hungary, the Soviet bloc and the wider world. I hope you'll join me for that not very uplifting but still fascinating story, guys. But until then, my history fans and lovely patrons, you know me, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 12 of 1956. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting us, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.